Scripture. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the uh, money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid for of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You know that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that, I, that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. That for a typical Advent reading, ending on a cheery note. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll get what's going on with that in a minute. We want to invite our children to Children's Church. Uh, your teacher will meet you in the back there. Um, and uh, as they go, let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to the Lord's word. Uh, Father, it's uh, that time of year where we get to sing some great theology about the incarnation. The greatest miracle that ever happened is that God added to himself human nature. And what a mind-expanding, mind-blowing thought that is. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming for us. 
coming to us, joining with us in saving us. And Lord, we're, we're very grateful. And we thank you for the common grace that you've given us in our culture to be able to come and sing these wonderful truths and have people actually sing along with us sometimes and, and not reject the message because it's in such a beautiful setting. And Lord, we pray that, especially as we do more Christmas caroling, uh, Lord, would you bless the fruit of um, the singing that we bring and the, the truths that we proclaim in song. And uh, Lord, we're just grateful for these things. Father, we want to pray, praise you for the Bohannons, uh, for Melissa and David, um, both needing surgery so close together. And, and Lord, the, the common grace that you've given humanity that, that you can do open heart surgery and, and have somebody home in a couple of days. And Lord, that uh, they could knit um, David's shoulder um, tendon back together. And it's just amazing, Lord, the, the things that you've granted us, the, the skills that you've given us. And thank you that you allow those to be used in the case of the Bohannans. And we, uh, we pray for their continued recovery, their healing. Lord, may this uh, holiday season uh, be a time of rest for them, but also a time of recovery. And uh, we look forward to having them back with our fellowship soon. And uh, Father, we pray for uh, Jeannie's uh, sister-in-law, Linda Conrad, um, who fell and injured her foot. And uh, Lord, thank you that Margaret, who's such a wonderful servant, is taking her to uh, urgent care to get her looked at. We pray that uh, the injury would be minor and, and able to be fixed quickly. And uh, Lord, we pray for her healing and we pray your blessing on Margaret for being a servant and taking her. And uh, similarly, Lord, we, we wanna pray for Brian Castillo uh, who has injured his back and his parents are taking him to the hospital as well. Lord, um, this is uh, not a great time of year to be sick, not that any time is, but. Uh, the holidays, we, we expect to be um, having fun and, and cheer and enjoying family. So, Lord, would you be with the Castillos? We're sorry they can't be with us this morning. Uh, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you bless them anyway? Bring to, to mind scriptures that they know and, and uh, words of comfort to their hearts as they um, wait for a diagnosis on their son. And uh, bring them healing, we pray. Uh, Father, we, we are um, grateful for the Advent season, and we pray that you now would bless your message to us, Lord, as we hear from your word that we would um, anticipate your second coming, Jesus. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So our Advent series is Waiting for Our Blessed Hope. And the idea is, you know, Advent traditionally is we rehearse what the Old Testament saints went through as they waited for the coming of the Messiah. And when they looked at it from their perspective, they saw the, return, the coming of Jesus and the return of Jesus, those two events collapsed together. And we see that because um, we're going to mention today how this starts is Jesus was going to Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom was coming right then. They thought those two events were collapsed together. And we have the perspective from history of noticing that there's a big time interval between those. And those are called the last days and that's where we're in. So this year, instead of rehearsing what the Old Testament saints looked forward to, I thought it would be helpful for us to look at what are we looking forward to. We're not looking forward to Jesus' initial coming. We're looking forward to his second coming. And Paul in Titus 2 calls that our blessed hope. And so last week we looked at future us. What will we be like when Jesus returns? What will the, the future for us hold? Uh, what are we like now and what will we be then? So this week we're going to look at the kingdom. What is the kingdom like? And what will it be like when he returns? So last night we went Christmas caroling at the Knight's house out in Rosemont. And it was a great time. It was really nice. We, we met some really wonderful neighbors. Um, I got to sit and talk theology until 930 at night. And, you know, I was digging it, you know, light stuff like could Jesus have sinned and 
what about the King James Bible? Is that the best translation? And um, uh, there was a couple others I can't recall. I think we talked eschatology, you know, all the light stuff that you want to talk about at Christmas. But I loved it. <laughs> so it was great. Um, but what, we, what I noticed is when we got there, you know, they had some great treats set out and, and hot chocolate that I didn't taste but I was told was awesome. They also had a table set out with a puzzle. And they were beginning to build a puzzle. They had the, f the outside of the puzzle, the frame of the puzzle built, and they were getting a good start on the inside portions. And I, that, I thought that was just really cool. So after we were done, we came back, and Jen Carlson went over and sat down, and they were working on this puzzle. And as I was searching for an illustration to kind of set up this sermon, I, that puzzle came to mind. And I looked up online um, difficult puzzles. And there is a thing called the impossible puzzle. And what you get is you get this puzzle in a bag, not a box. You don't get the whole picture of what the puzzle will be. You get a little sample of it, but it's not the whole picture. And then the really dastardly one, they throw in five extra pieces, and they don't tell you where they go, that kind of stuff. That would just be really be hard. But, but think about building a puzzle when you don't have that picture to go with. You know, you, you'd first start out by putting out the edges. And there are puzzles, by the way, that don't have edges. So it makes it really that don't ever buy me one of those. <laughs> I would go insane. But you would start with, when you don't have the whole picture, you'd start with the border, and you'd get that down, and then you'd start working on those pieces inside, trying to fill it in. And as you're going, you would see the picture emerge, and you'd get the idea of what it is. It's, it's come into its fullness. And that seems to me to be kind of like what it's like for us when we're talking about the kingdom of God, is, is we don't have the full picture of it. We've got just a snapshot of the picture, just kind of a corner of it. And we're, we've got the borders down. We know what the edges of it are. But we're engaged right now inside the middle of that puzzle, putting those pieces together, trying to form that picture and see how it emerges and how it comes together. And so that's what I wanted to use, kind of set up this idea of the kingdom of God. So here's the question. And this is a, a huge question with theologians is, is the kingdom of God now or is it future? And the answer is not as easy as you would think it is because there are scriptures that make it sound like the kingdom of God is now. For example, in Luke 17, um, Luke tells the story, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So it sounds like the kingdom has come. It's here. It's, it's here now. And yet, Jesus, when he teaches his disciples how to pray, he teaches them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus in one breath says, kingdom of God is here. And in the next one, he says, now pray that it comes. So is the kingdom of God here or is it not? Is it future? And of course, the answer is yes. If you try to fall on one side or the other, you're going to run into texts that give you problems. And so we have to wrestle with the stress of the kingdom of God has dawned and yet will come in fullness in the future. And so that's what I want to look at today for, as part of our Advent series is the nature of the kingdom of God. How is it here now and what will it be like in the future when it arrives? So the first question you should be asking is, what is the kingdom of God? What do you mean by that phrase? Um, the The... The disciples had a very distinct idea of what the kingdom of God would look like, and we need to answer that question. Um, one of the best books on the kingdom of God is by a theologian from the 1950s named George Eldon Ladd, 
It's a small little book. It's pretty, pretty simple, but the writing in there is one of those books I wanted to highlight everything in it. It's called The Gospel of the Kingdom. And so he goes through all of these dis- different scriptures, and he talks about the kingdom now, the kingdom in the future, this aspect of the kingdom, life in the kingdom, that kind of thing. And he defines it this way. He says, the kingdom of God, therefore, is the reign of God through Christ, destroying the enemies of God's reign. And I think that's an extremely loaded thing. So let me say it again. The kingdom of God, therefore, is the reign of God through Christ, destroying the enemies of God's reign. So what does it mean that he destroys the enemies of God's reign? Well, the first, who's the biggest enemy that you can think of of God's reign? Satan. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ defeated Satan. He broke his hold. He took the most powerful tool that Satan had, which was the fear of death, and he removed it from him. Satan has been defeated. Now it's a cleanup operation as we keep, you know, removing his reign from the earth, but he was the biggest obstacle to the reign of God as as he would stir up all these problems. So in that sense, he is destroyed, and his destruction is sure, and it's coming in the future. But the other aspect of Jesus destroying the enemies of God's reign is not necessarily destroying as in killing, but something even more glorious, converting, bringing people into that kingdom. So he's destroying their opposition by making them part of that kingdom. And so that's, that's what we're going to look at as the kingdom of God. Is The kingdom of God is God's reign through Christ, destroying opposition to God's reign. And so let's take a look at this, this parable now. Um, we're going to start by discussing the kingdom as it is now, currently. So verse 11, as they heard these things, as they heard what things? Well, we couldn't start at the very beginning of this. The story right before this is the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He was a, what was called a chief tax collector. It's a word unique to the New Testament, and it, it describes somebody who is there on behalf of the Romans, and he's collecting tariffs. He's collecting money. Now, the tax collectors in Jesus' day were really hated, frowned upon, disliked. They were seen as huge traitors because they were working for the Romans, and they were charging these taxes, but the, the, the slush way of doing this was you'd charge extra. So the Romans expected, you know, one drachma tax, and you'd take two. And then you would pay what you had, and, and it would become rich. So Zacchaeus is extraordinarily rich. He's a rich, rich man. And the idea is he lived in, in Jericho, and so there was this big trade in balsam in Jericho. And the thought is he probably was extracting really high taxes off of that. And so Jesus comes to Jericho, and, and Zacchaeus crawls up, crawls up into a tree because he wants to see him because he's also rich and he's very short. So he crawls up into the tree, and Jesus calls him down and says, Zacchaeus, I must have dinner at your house tonight. And so he goes and he eats with Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is just overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus in his, in his house. And he, he confesses faith, and he says, if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to pay him back twice as much. It's just this amazing story of this, this change in a man and the way the story ends is, is Jesus says salvation has come to this house for Zacchaeus is truly a son of Abraham. That statement is scandalous. You can't imagine what a scandal that is. Think for a second. Imagine if in the 1980s the Soviet Union had invaded, successfully invaded the United States. If they came in and they took over and somebody you know, somebody who's close to you, 
sided with the Soviets and went around and helped them collect guns from people, taking firearms away from folks. What would you think of that person? We are now under communist rule, and this person is helping them take away our ability to fight back. That's a traitor. I can't stand that person. They, they've betrayed us. They've turned against us. Now imagine if that person met Jesus, and Jesus says, this salvation has come to them, for they are true son of the revolution, the American revolution. You would go, what? That can't be. How, how on earth is that possible? That's the, the degree to which Zacchaeus was seen as an enemy of the state. The people were blown away. And so Jesus says, salvation has come to him. He's a son of David, or a son of Abraham. And then he announces at the very end, he says, for the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. And so that's why the very next verse says, as they heard these things. So that sets up this parable. What I think Jesus is doing, or what Luke is doing by, by talking about Zacchaeus right before this, is he's showing us what will the kingdom be like now. Because what comes next is he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and they supposed the kingdom of God was coming immediately. So he tells them this parable to say, no, it's not coming immediately. But Luke tells us the Zacchaeus story to tell us what is it like now between Jesus first coming and his second coming between these times what will the kingdom be like now well the kingdom now is that we are sent to seek and save the lost we are carrying on jesus mission he's coming in to save people so the first thing you have to understand about the kingdom of god is that you have to be born again to see it john 3 3 jesus answered nicodemus truly truly i say to you unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of god so just as we heard, it it's doesn't come in the way that you would expect it to come. It doesn't come looking like what you think it's going to look like. You have to be born again to see this kingdom. So that's how, that's how we begin to get introduced to it. So what does it look like now that it's, it's beginning to come, as, as it's invisible but it's growing? Well, Jesus tells them another parable. This is from Matthew 13. He says, the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in a field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. Starts tiny, grows slowly. The next parable he tells him right after that is he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So this is that picture of the kingdom as it is now, is you can't see it unless you're born again. And the way it, it comes is it's like a tiny little seed or a little bit of leaven in dough, and it slowly grows and expands and it spreads out. You've got the border of the puzzle. Now we're working to build that inside part piece by piece, slowly, working it together. So that's the nature of the kingdom of God. That's what it looks like, is it doesn't come in the way you would expect it to. It, it comes slowly and it builds and it fills. Remember when we went through Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had seen that statue with the different metals. And, and Daniel is given prophetic insight into what that means. This is different kingdoms. And he tells him the meaning of it. And at the end, he says that he saw a, a stone carved from a mountain, not by human hands, come and strike the feet of that idol. And then that stone grew and filled the entire earth. It didn't come in one large chunk and smashed it. It smashed it at its feet, and then it slowly grew. It grew and filled the earth. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. That's what it looks like as it comes. It's slow. It's quiet. It's filling. It's building as it goes. 
And so what is, the, what is it like to be in that kingdom? What's the nature of that kingdom? Well, there are so many things that we could say about this. We could do just a huge series on, on the nature of the kingdom of God. But I wanted to pick one verse that would let us kind of pin down the heart of the issue. What's it like to be a member of this kingdom of God? It's from Romans chapter 14. Uh, Romans 14, Paul is wrestling with the question of when to eat and not eat. Some people are fasting on these days, and they think that's more important. Other people want to fast on that day, and that's more important in, in what's going on. And so Paul kind of resolves it in verse 17. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So this is what the nature of this kingdom is, this slowly growing, this, this spreading out of this kingdom. It's righteousness. It, it, that's the, one of the, the hallmarks of this. And, and how do we get the righteousness of this kingdom? Well, remember from Romans, we get that righteousness because it's not ours. It's Jesus given to us. So in Romans 3.21, Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. So the matter of the kingdom of God is, first of all, you have to be born again to see it. And second of all, you believe in Jesus Christ and then you receive his righteousness. That's the nature of the kingdom of God is righteousness. So we, be, we receive his righteousness and that's how we are members of this kingdom. That's what it looks like. And, and that comes only through the fact that Jesus died and rose again. So in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him who knew no, uh, he, I'm sorry, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. It's through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. That's why you have to be born again to see it. So when we're walking in this world now as part of this kingdom of God, it just kind of looks like every other day. It, it's not something just, you know, dramatically different for us. We labor through our day on a regular basis. We slog through all the things that we did before we were born again. We struggle with the same problems on a daily basis. My car broke down. The, the dishwasher is backed up. The, the washing machine isn't washing. You know, all of these same problems. The difference is that we have this growing kingdom of God in here, and it's, it's coming in. And so it's, it's an internal change. It's, it's righteousness for us. It's not this wonderful peace. But wait a minute. It is peace. Because Paul said it's righteousness, the kingdom of God today is peace also. But it's not the kind of peace that you would think it would be. You know, I want peace as in I don't want to have any more problems. I don't want my car to break down. I don't want people to get mad at me. Um, I don't want to have frustration and that kind of stuff. It, that's not big enough. That would be great. I'm not arguing. That would be nice. It's not big enough. So listen to the peace that we have. The kingdom of God is peace, Colossians 3.15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So we, we experience this peace. Where is that peace from? Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's the peace of God that comes to us. And then the great news is, who is this peace with? Romans 5, 10. For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more... Are we reconciled? How, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So the great news is this peace that we experience is peace with God, the author, the creator, the ruler of the universe, and we're at harmony with him. He has reconciled us. He's made us at peace with him. 
He's done that by giving us the righteousness of Christ so we can be friends with him, that our sins are not just kind of waved away, but dealt with exactly, concisely, concretely, and then therefore we have peace. And then what's the result of that for us? Well, the last one is the kingdom of God is a matter of joy. It's joy. We talked about this last book when we looked at Philippians. We talked about what joy was. So what do we mean by joy? Well, C.S. Lewis tried to give us a definition, and it's a little murky. He said, joy is an unsatisfied desire, which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. So joy is a desire that you would rather have than any other satisfaction that you could have. And he differentiated joy and happiness and pleasure. He says, joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and only and one only in common with happiness and pleasure, the fact that anyone who's experienced and anyone who's experienced it will want it again. So having joy makes you want more joy. That, that's, that's the heart of it. But I don't think it really nails it down. It's kind of a murky one. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great uh, British preacher, said, Joy, in other words, is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me pin that down a little bit more. Joy is this feeling that we have, that we want more of that feeling. We want more and more of it. Joy is for us, it comes through Jesus Christ. And joy is not happiness. It's not gladness. It's something that transcends those because we can lament, we can mourn in joy. What joy is, is this settled feeling in our hearts that because of Jesus Christ, we know what our future will be like. And so as our present is difficult and struggling and we're, we're tumbling and having a hard time, we're looking forward to that joy that we will have and that can't be taken away. There's nothing in this world that can take that joy away from us. Now, in Philippians, when we looked at that, I said there are things that can diminish it and make it you know, hard to see sometimes. But it's that settled, rooted feeling in your heart that it comes from Jesus Christ knowing what our future is. And then the last thing he says is it's the Holy Spirit. This truth that he gives us, this hope that he gives us, this righteousness, this peace is granted to us by the Holy Spirit when we're born again so that we can see the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of God now is invisible. It's, it's not something we can see. It's growing and it's spreading. And it's that settled conviction about our future in Jesus Christ. So that takes us to the next part, the bigger part of this, the parable itself. Because what people expected was that kingdom of God was not that internal kingdom, that, that sense and that feeling, that work of God reconciling people to himself. They were expecting, well, the kingdom of God is David's greater son comes in, kicks out the Romans, sits down on the throne and rules the nation and will be great like we were with Solomon, right? And so Jesus says, I'm heading to Jerusalem. I don't want you to get this wrong. Let me tell you a parable. And so in verse 12, he says, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. What Jesus just said to them is, it's not happening now. I'm not walking into Jerusalem to receive it. I'll be going to a far country. In other words, I'm going to be crucified, buried, raised, and then I'll ascend into heaven. And that's where I'll receive my kingdom. And then once I've received my kingdom, then I'll return. So he says it's a nobleman who did this. Now, in Greek, that's just the word for man. Um, but you have to kind of read it in context to see what it means. Nobleman is actually probably a good translation because what we'll see of this man is he has servants. 
and he has people who know he's going to rule over them, and they don't like him, and they don't want him to do it. And so he's got some sort of position in this. So he's, he's going to go off to a far country and to receive his kingdom and then come back and, and rule it. That's, that's what he's going to do. So what does it mean by kingdom here? Well, it can't be real estate. He already has that. He, he lives there. He's going off to get his kingdom. What he's going to get is the authority to rule. The, the greater king is going to give him the authority and say, you rule this area. This is your kingdom now. So that's where he's going. He's going to go off and get that. So he calls 10 of his servants, and he gives them 10 minas. How much is a mina? I don't know. It doesn't, ca- it doesn't matter. Don't care. It's some monetary value. It's, it's not important what it is because what he does is he gives them some money, and he says, engage in business until I come back. So for us, what that means is that kingdom now aspect of it growing and, and spreading Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And, and unless you, in case you missed it, we put it on big letters in the hallway. You're to go and make disciples of all nations. That's our part in the kingdom. That's our role. He wants us to take what he's given us and do business with it. And it isn't go out and become rich. He wants us to gather more people in. He, he gives them money. He says, while I'm gone, I expect you to be busy about the business I have given you. So he gives them money. He says, engage in business until I come. Now, there's kind of a parenthesis here, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Notice it's his citizens. So what's happening here is this man has been called to a foreign country to receive his kingship. Now, does that mean that he is not, at this moment, he's not a king, he has no authority, he's nothing in, you know, would it be wise at this point, once you've heard the call for him to come and receive his kingdom, Would it be wise to say, well, he's just another citizen. He's no big deal. It would be wise to look at him and go, this man's coming to rule. He he hasn't received the kingdom yet, but he's going to get it. He might as well have it. It might as well be his. When I was in the Air Force, when we got promoted in in the the, uh, NCO ranks, uh, the way they would do it is you would test and they would evaluate you. And then if you passed the mark, they would give you what they call a line number. So you get a line number. I got a line number for master sergeant. I was a tech sergeant, but I got a line number for master sergeant. Now, did they just ignore me and say, well, no big deal? When you sew your stripe on, then come back and see us? As soon as I got the line number for master, they started saying, okay, well, what are you going to do? Where are you going to put you? What's your role going to be? How are you going to fit in? Because they already began to treat me like I was promoted. It's a similar thing here. This man is going off to a far country to receive his kingdom. It would be wise for the citizens to acknowledge this guy's king. He's coming back, and and it's just the way it is. So to the servants, he tells them, go out and be busy about the work of the kingdom. Do the things that I've told you to do. And then there's other people who say, we don't want him to rule over us. And so he goes. Now, when he returns, he comes back, and he's he's received his kingdom. He orders the servants to come in before him. "I, I told you what you should do. Now come and report to me. And so the first one comes in and says, your mina has made 10 more. And he's, great, good job. You, you took that money and you invested it and you, you worked really well. The next one comes in and says, your mina made five more. And he, Excellent, well done. You, you did great. And then the last servant comes in and he's terrified. He says, I know you're a hard man. You, you reap what you didn't sow. You, you take what you didn't leave. And, and so I was terrified of you. And so what I did is I just wrapped it up in a handkerchief, put it in the top drawer behind the socks, closed the drawer, and here's your money back. And Jesus says, That's exactly not what I wanted you to do. That is the opposite of what I wanted you to do. So here's the picture that I think Jesus is painting for us. 
The kingdom is now. It's a hidden kingdom. You can't see it. It's growing. He's come to seek and save the lost. He's given us commission to be involved in that. If we come and we say, okay, well, I've received the kingdom. I, I understand I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and now I'm going to sit on my hands and do nothing and just wait till he comes back, and then it'll be all okay. Jesus is not going to be happy at that moment. That, that's not what he's told you to do. He's given us a job while he's gone, and he expects us to carry that out. So the kingdom now, we need to be engaged in working with that mina and figure out how much we can invest it in and where can we spend it. How can we, how can we spend our time well and, and make more of it? Because this, this, um, this servant is, is said, I'm going to hang you with your own words. You knew what I was like and you didn't do anything with it. You could have done the minimum and I would have been happy. And the minimum was just take it and put it in the bank. I would have got, you know, a couple of pennies in interest on it at least. But you did nothing. And so the startling thing about this kingdom to come is that when it comes, we will give an account. How are you spending your time? What are you doing? Have you made an investment? It says, why didn't you put the money in the bank? Then I would have had it with interest. At least do something. Don't just sit on it. And so he tells the people around him, take that one miner this man has and give it to the, other, the guy with 10. And it's like, wait a minute, he's got 10. That's right. He was faithful with, with little, and he's gained much, and so he'll have more. But this person, he wasn't faithful with anything. It'll be taken away from him. Then the most startling thing, the one that really, when Rich read it, I kind of gasped a little bit. Verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them in front of me. The Greek is very graphic. It's cut them up into pieces in front of me. When we think about the kingdom that's coming, what we need to think about is judgment. Now, I don't want to leave it on a downer, but let me, let me explain what I'm talking about here. Jesus in his first coming didn't come to judge. John 3.17, we know 3.16, 3.17 is, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So his first coming is to bring salvation. And Paul, when he said the Areopagus in, in um, Athens, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this, he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he says, look, there's a day coming when Jesus, who was raised from the dead, is coming to judge the world. And so that's the startling part of this, is we look at this and we say, this is terrible. He's going to come and cut up his enemies? Well, you can't forget the first part. This is why I think tying it to Zacchaeus is extremely important. The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. He, he's not just coming to zap everybody at the end. He is sending out this message of reconciliation and inviting people in. Come in. Come to the kingdom. This, I think this is a parallel to the conquest of Canaan. So Israel has left Egypt. They've been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They wander 40 years in the desert. They send spies into the land. And the spies come back. I, I love this picture. They have a pole between them, and they have a bunch of grapes that is so big they can't carry it by hand. They have to put it on a pole to carry it. What does that make the promised land sound like? This is the lap of luxury. This is great. The food is just everywhere. It's going to be wonderful, and they won't go. So when they finally do go in, 
They, the first place that they attack, the first uh, city they come to is Jericho. And God says, this is dedicated destruction. Nothing makes it out alive. Don't take any loot from it. Wipe everybody out. And modern day people are like, isn't that genocide? How can God do that? That's not fair. That's wrong. He, he can't do those things. It's as startling as Jesus saying, bring my enemies before me and, and cut them up. It's that startling. But in both cases, if you just focus on that, you miss the first part. In Canaan, in Jericho, there was a woman named Rahab. And Rahab was a prostitute. She had a house of ill repute. Ill repute. But when the spies came in, she hid them. And she said, look, we heard about what your God's doing, and everybody in the city is trembling, and I'm on his side. Everybody else in the city heard the same stories because they were trembling, and their reaction was, we're going to fight against him. So when you look at this, even this, the conquest of Canaan, there is this preaching, this message that goes forward that says, come and be reconciled. Jesus comes and says, look, I came to seek and save the lost. There is time now between the first coming and the second coming. This is the time to be reconciled. This is when you should come into the kingdom. This is when you need to be born again and come and see the kingdom. Because what's coming is terrifying. But it's not just his enemies being cut up. It's also looking to his servants. And, and the good news is the servants are rewarded. The one who did a lot gets a lot. The one who didn't do as much, he got five minus, not ten. He doesn't go, well, I wanted ten. Get out of here. The amount is not what's important. That's, not, that's why he looks at the last one who didn't do a thing and said, you could have put it in the bank. You could have at least done that. And he would have been satisfied with that. So that's the great news is, is judgment is coming. And it's terrifying for those outside the kingdom. But for those inside, we're going to be rewarded. Uh, Harlan and I were talking this past week about that, that story where um, Jesus' disciples come and say, we want to sit on your left hand and your right hand when you come into your kingdom. Now, they're thinking, you know, we're going to march into Jerusalem and take over. And Jesus looks at him and goes, you guys, it's, it's not for me to give out. That's been assigned to people. But he tells them, you will, however, participate in the baptism, which I'm baptized, and you'll drink from the cup, which I'm drinking from. In other words, you'll be killed. And so Harlan and I were saying, well, who gets those seats? Who did, who did Jesus say? Those are reserved. Th those have names on it that says reserved for. And, and as we were talking about it, we thought, you know, it's probably somebody you have never heard of. There'll be somebody that, that is, you'll look and go, who's that? And somebody will come and explain to you who that is. And it's like, oh, my gosh, look at what they did for the kingdom. And nobody knew. It won't be the celebrity pastors or the guys selling all the books or any of that. It'll be somebody that we've never heard of. And we get to look at that. That's the promise of this kingdom. That's the part that we overlook if we just focus on cut up my enemies. The message of cut up my enemies is don't be an enemy. Be reconciled. You don't want that part. You want to be one of the citizens who welcomes him back. So when is this happening? When will this occur? When will this, this kingdom come in its fullness? The kingdom came in its original setting in the arrival of Jesus Christ, when he was born, when he lived, when he ministered when he performed miracles that's why he said the kingdom of god is in your midst i'm standing here you guys you don't get a kingdom without a king i'm the king when will he cut when will it come back well it will come back at the end of the age when jesus returns we don't know when that day is um, so any speculation you read and somebody has picked another date on the calendar 
um, please feel free to roll your eyes as loudly as you possibly can and just go, not again. We won't know. You know how we'll know? Because Jesus will come back. We won't be able to figure it out. But when he comes back and he sets up his kingdom on this earth, that's when righteousness will come. That's when peace will come. That's when joy will come in the face of Jesus Christ. We'll see him as he is. And then once he's put away the last enemy, which is death, then we get the new heavens and the new earth. And sin and death and hell are all removed. And it will be nothing but joy as we see him face to face and therefore we are like him. That's what the, the future kingdom will be like. So in the time between then and now, he doesn't promise us that it's going to be easy. He said, look, if the world hates you, they, they hated me first. Of course they're going to hate you. But what I want you to do is what I did, which is come and spread the news of salvation. And so the people that you least expect will wind up coming in. Nobody would have picked Zacchaeus to have been saved. He was the greatest trader in the world. He made a ton of money at being a trader. Back in the early 80s, when I first came in the Air Force, there was a group of us that worked together, and one of these guys was, how do I say it in church? He was a wild man. He had different tastes. He was a good friend, but he just was out there. And I didn't hear from him after I left. I didn't hear from him again until the early 90s when I was in Korea. And somebody told him, oh, yeah, he got stationed in the Philippines. And they ran into him, and, and he was up to really freaky stuff there, too. And so I thought, wow, man, you know, Jack never changed. And then I connected with him on Facebook. And it blew my mind. He is a doting father. He has a young daughter. He lives in Guam. And he loves this girl. And all of a sudden, he's liking these Bible verses that I'm posting and commenting on this stuff. And I was like, this is him? I, if All of my friends at that point, if you would have asked me who would be saved, I would not have picked him. And so every once in a while, I think about Jack, and I go, Lord, you can save anybody. So when I see somebody or I have somebody in my family or in my immediate circle, I think they're beyond salvation, I remember him and go, you can save anybody. Remember Zacchaeus. He was horrible. You could save anybody. That's the glory of the kingdom now, is it's available to us. And the impetus from the kingdom to come is, ladies and gentlemen, get busy. Jesus has given you minas. He expects you to invest them. He's given you talents. He's given you gifts. He's given you abilities. He's given you time. He's given all of us the same time. We don't get any extra, but he's given you 24 hours in a day. How are you working for that? How are you spending that for, for his kingdom? Now, don't for a minute think that, oh, if I don't, then I'm not saved. Or if I don't do it enough, I'm not saved. Remember righteousness? You are declared righteous because of Jesus' salvation, or because of Jesus' sacrifice. He has given you his righteousness. All he's saying now is go out and do it. Act like that. Do those things. Not to earn them, but because you already have them. But the day is coming. It's going to be here. And, and at that day, I like the way Matthew tells pretty much the same story. He, he says the master's response is, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Anybody want to hear that on, on Judgment Day? I would love to hear that. I would be happy if I heard, fairly done, okay servant, enter into your master's joy. That would be enough for me. But to hear, well done. That is the joy that we're talking about. 
That, that's the advent that we're looking forward to. So whatever the situation is now, whatever is going on now, if we look past that and look to that day, there's somebody greater than whoever's given you trouble today. There, there's somebody greater than whoever's bothering you about whatever it is that you wake up in the morning and are angry about. And he's coming. He's coming back. So that's why I said this, this Advent series is about our blessed hope. Put your hope in the future, in the return, the coming of the king, not in the citizens who grumble about we don't want him to rule over us. We don't have to worry about them. They will be taken care of. They're going to give us a hard time, but they will be taken care of in perfect righteousness by the great and better king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we can't see the kingdom. Uh, we're born again, and so we can taste it. We, we get the, the feel of it. We get the contours of it. But it's not something concrete standing in front of us yet. And so sometimes, Lord, it can be a struggle to maintain the joy and the hope that we have in that kingdom. Lord, would you, Holy Spirit, root that in our hearts. Cause us to transcend the, the, the struggle that is now as we wait the return of our king. And Lord, fill us with a joy that can't be taken away. Root us in hope of a future where our king rules in perfect righteousness. And Lord, in the meantime, would you remind us to be busy about the work he has given us to do. Lord, we ask these things in his name for his glory, for the sake of his kingdom, as we are just servants doing no more than we've been asked. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and stand with us.